0: You're listening to TIP. A second brain is is my term for a system of knowledge. Imagine all the stuff you have to remember, keep track of, think about, decide on, research, learn, which is just far beyond what the human brain is capable of. So instead of trying to like improve our memory or change our biology, which is very hard, we're just outsourcing We're offloading the job of remembering and connecting and reflecting. A lot of the thinking tasks can now be done by software.
1: On today's episode, I'm joined by Tiago Forte. Tiago is the creator of Building a Second Brain, where he helps people improve their productivity and lead a more fulfilling life. During this episode, Tiago discusses what building a second brain is, how to use your second brain to improve productivity, unlock your creative potential, deal with information overload, as well as how we can use it to become better investors. Tiago also shares his top productivity hacks with us and some of the common pitfalls he sees individuals make that hold them back from reaching their goals and so much more. I wanted to have Tiago on to share this method with you all because as investors, we are constantly consuming information and having to determine what's important, what's not. And since following his system, it's really helped me manage information overload and become more productive and effective in the information I consume. So without further delay, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Tiago. You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, And on today's episode, I'm joined by Tiago Forte. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. I first got introduced to your book, Building a Second Brain, from One of our other hosts, actually, Patrick, he wrote about this book in our newsletter about how legendary investor Guy Spear uses your productivity system to just manage his informational life. And so I grabbed a copy of your book and once I read it, I knew I wanted to have you on just to chat about this more because I think that it has so many applications to both becoming a better investor and just how to become more productive and efficient with the tremendous amount of information we're flooded with each day. And so for our listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, could you start off by explaining what a second brain is and what this can help us with?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a second brain is, is my term for a system of knowledge. It's like a system of, you could call it knowledge management. Imagine all the stuff you have to remember, keep track of, think about, decide on, research, learn. Which is just far beyond what the human brain is capable of, uh, far beyond. I always joke that our, our minds, our brains have not been upgraded in 200,000 years. So we're using 200,000 year old hardware and trying to run a complex 21st century life. If you have any feeling of stress and anxiety, any feeling like you have too much on your plate, any balls in the air, maybe it's not because you are not smart enough or not productive enough. It's just that. Your brain was just not designed to handle the load that it's trying to carry. So instead of trying to like improve our memory or change our biology, which is very hard, we're just outsourcing. We're offloading the job of remembering and connecting and reflecting. A lot of the thinking tasks can now be done by software. So why not let software that runs 24-7, never sleeps, never forgets anything, is practically free, do those jobs instead of trying to do them ourselves?
1: Yeah, I've just found it so interesting reading your book, and I've been implementing some of the practices, which we're going to get into. But first, I am wondering, what would you say is the distinction between what a first brain should do then and what a second brain should do for someone who's trying to be the most productive, efficient, and creative as possible?
0: Yeah, I think about this a lot. I think it really depends on each person. And what you have to ask yourself is, what are the kinds of thinking that only I can do Right, that take advantage of my unique experience, my perspective, my skills, my you know my education, that add the most value, that are actually contributions to my career or my company or my industry, and which thinking activities can be done by anyone. Just think about your day. How much of the thinking that you did today could not one other human being in the entire world do? I think for most of us, if we're honest, we'd say like 10% or something or 5%. And if you think about, you know, that attention, that mental bandwidth as your biggest asset, like your number one resource that you have to spend every day, you can't be spending it on things that are the same as what anyone else would do. You really have to keep doubling down and focusing more and more of your attention on on the thinking and the decisions and the results that only you can produce.
1: And what I really liked about this and when reading your book, you talk about how once you start to offload all this information. It's not necessarily useless information, but it's information that doesn't need to be in your memory, in your brain. It could be offloaded into your digital note app where you can go recall it later, but you don't have to keep it all in your brain. And instead that could free up room for you to be more creative and for you to be more productive. And so wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that actually works.
0: Yeah. I think there's this tension where Modern knowledge work depends on details. You need to know. You sometimes read like there's the book essentialism or the one thing. And it's like all about, okay, what is your central priority? Forget everything else. You can't forget everything else. You know, try ignoring your, your emails and see what happens after a few days. Try ignoring your, you know, your chat messages. Try ignoring the small stuff for a while and it will suddenly, it will eventually become an emergency and become a big thing. Right. You have to keep track of details. There's no way around it. There's absolutely no way around it, but you don't have to personally remember those details. That is the perfect use case for notes, right? Notes, remembering numbers, details about a client, little excerpts from like an investment report and an analysis report you're reading, you know, wisdom from a mentor on how to invest better, quotes from a book you're reading about, you know, a famous investor that you want to model like it. You have to remember these details, but you really can't keep them in mind. And so I really think of a second brain as just this knowledge bank. It's like this vault of all the details that I want to fuel my, my work and my life. It's like I can just step away, not have to worry about them, stress about them, think about them for one second longer than I have to. Just set them aside and access them, you know, basically as needed.
1: And so I guess just to get into it a little bit, you talk about how important and the first step to really building a second brain is writing things down. And this is digital note taking, ideally, because then it's always with you. And so that just helps us, I guess, offload them, but then recall them when we need them so we don't have to rely on our memory but this was just really interesting to me. I've always been a big fan of note-taking, but I don't think I've always done it in the most efficient way. So can you talk to us a little bit about your process of note-taking and just maybe why this is so powerful in the first place?
0: Yeah, you know, it's really about um, getting the little casual behaviors that you already do. Sometimes people think, oh, build a second brain. I'm going to like Create this whole new set of systems and fancy techniques, but I think you're on the right track. Just look at what comes naturally, intuitively that you already know how to do, right? Things like in a meeting or on a call, just jotting down those few notes. Those notes you're already taking, save them in your digital notes. Things like when you read a book and you have that impulse, oh, I should write this down. Follow that impulse, but just do it in a digital place so that it's like we tend to take notes a lot, but in all these little different places, like a post-it here, a journal here, some notes in an email, some notes in a Google Doc. Imagine if all those same notes were just centralized in one place so that you always know where to put things, but also you know where to look, right? That that decision of where to put a note and then where to look for your notes becomes completely automatic because there's really just one centralized place where it all goes that's why I really like the the metaphor of digital note-taking is note-taking like we've been doing it since we were children you know it's natural it's intuitive it is not this fancy super advanced technique it's just like an everyday almost mundane behavior that we're already doing that we're just trying to make a little more intentional and a little more strategic
1: And I'll say ever since I started implementing this, one thing that has really helped me though, since I've read your book is I have to consume a lot of information for this role as a podcast host. And so a lot of the time when I'm, when I'm listening to say another podcast, if I found something interesting, I would take a mental note of it. But then if I ever wanted to really remember what was said, sometimes I had to go back and listen to the whole episode again. And that is just so inefficient. And so I found. This really helps with productivity because then you write things down at the time you're doing them. And then you can just go back to your notes instead of having to maybe reread a chapter or have to re-listen to a podcast or whatever it is. It just makes your life more efficient because you don't have to spend extra time redoing something.
0: That's such a good way to think about it. Think about it. I almost think like, yeah, it's like once you've done some mental effort, I think often we don't think of thinking as mental labor but it is. It takes real energy to like even like read something. It's like you are burning calories. You're using neurochemicals to read that thing. I always use the term invested that time. It's like you invested. You want a return on that investment. You can get that return on the investment simply by saving just a few of the key points. It's just incredible to me that people don't do this. They throw away or they just give their attention to something with no expectation that it will have any return, any practical effect, any improvement to anything. It's just like kind of that information is in one ear out the other. And really, this is just this isn't a way to do more reading or more learning or more information consumption. It's just capitalizing on the, the mental labor you're already doing. It's It's a perfect way to think about it.
1: Yeah. And I will say it's really helped me and it's something that I'm going to continue to do going forward. But I am wondering because you also talk about in the book how this can help us really deal with information overload, which I think everyone experiences at some points in their life, whether it's just with investing or in your career, we're constantly bombarded with information all day. And so how can this really help us manage that issue?
0: Yeah. You know, the information overload, it's the million dollar question. It's kind of the question of our time. You know, I, I cite in my book that by one measure, the amount of information consumption that the average person takes in on an average day is like five times what it was in 1986, a fivefold increase. It's like the equivalent of reading War and Peace, the book War and Peace every single day. So first of all, there's not one solution. We're talking about like a civilization level problem. It's not like, oh, just do this one thing. You really need like a whole suite of solutions. Some of those are things like just turning off your devices. You know, digital minimalism is part of the solution for sure. But I feel like I'm offering a different kind of solution, which is not stepping back from the internet and technology because you don't want to abstain from the internet. Okay, the internet is like the future. It's the very center of our civilization. It's where everything is happening in in the world is, is online. So you don't want to like... Move to your Walden, you know, cabin in the woods and just say, forget all this just because, you know, there's too many notifications on your phone. You can't abstain. You really can't. But there's a way where you can be on the internet in the chaos, in the storm of information, get that information and just instead of taking it in through your eyeballs into your brain, you just redirect it. It's kind of like getting the storm and going, okay, I'm going to take you in, but then you go over here, you know, with some steps to curate it and distill it. And that way, you know, I almost think of the internet like a storm. You wouldn't go out in, in a storm without any protection, you know, without any buffer, without any anything between you and the, the stuff hitting you. The same is true in an information storm. You need like a barrier, a buffer, so you can take things in, in a way that you control them and you can use them, but don't actually directly affect your physiology, honestly. Like if you don't have that buffer in between you and the internet, every news flash and update and notification hits your brain just like a... like a slap. And it's honestly very anxiety inducing, not good for your mental health, makes it hard to sleep. If you're feeling any of those symptoms, maybe you just need, you know, the equivalent of like a a heavy coat to protect you from the the weather. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every 2 weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/mi. That's M O N A R C H M O N E Y.com slash MI for your extended 30 day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right,
0: back to the show.
1: I am curious to know, so you've been doing this such a long time. Where did this idea stem from?
0: Yeah, it was really a a chronic health condition. You know, it was a chronic health condition that none of my doctors could figure out. It was like a chronic pain and tension in my neck and my throat. And for years, I just kind of went from one doctor to another looking for some magic pill or treatment or, you know, medicine Thinking that I could just find this magic bullet and then it would, it would be gone. And eventually it became clear that it wasn't like a virus or an infection. It was a, what's called a functional condition, which is when basically you don't take care of your body well enough and it starts to not work right. And it's, it's interesting because at the time I felt so alone. I felt like, you know, no one has a problem like this one today. As I've talked about this more, almost everyone has something like this, like a, a you know, a, a pain in, in a joint. You know, recurring rash, an allergy, some tension in their lower back. Like we all have some little recurring thing that is not an illness to be cured, but is more like how to just care for your body in a better way. But I had to discover that. I had to discover it was a functional condition. And I did that by taking notes. What every doctor did told me. Everything that I tried changes to my diet, my nutrition, my exercise, my mental health, my sleep, my habits. I just documented everything. And what emerged from this basically like self-research, I was like researching myself. I suddenly saw patterns that, oh, if I change this, 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 and this, just small everyday habits, somehow my condition resolves itself or at least gets much better. And these days, I often ask people, like, what recurring problem, whether it's in your health or, or something else, what recurring problem, are you pretty sure the answers are out there? Like, there are solutions. People have faced this before. It's just a question of you proactively going out, finding that information, bringing it somewhere you control, organizing it making sense of it, drawing out patterns, and then just implementing it. I think almost, almost every problem. There's very few problems that no human has ever faced before.
1: Very true. Yeah, no, that is such a great story because I think, again, everyone just struggles with their own way of managing all this information. A lot of people probably don't even know they're struggling with this. And so you had a purpose to figure out what was wrong with you. And so I guess really to hit the point home one of the benefits of building a second brain is just this productivity aspect into offload. So we don't have to rely on our memory, but perhaps beyond that, what are some of the bigger and maybe more important things that it could really just help us achieve?
0: You know, it's funny because for me, productivity is part of everything. You know, anything that you want to change, create, influence, persuade, produce, like, like those are all actions, right? Those are all You taking ownership and agency, deciding something is going to be different than what would happen anyway, and then taking that action. So to me, productivity is just the art and science of making those actions effective, right? So, I mean, it's almost hard to wrap your head around the the variety of use cases. You know, when I want to improve my relationship with my wife, one example, you might think that has nothing to do, like productivity, efficiency, knowledge management, nothing could be more different. But everything in life comes down to information. Right. Like, like, if you think about it, we are only access to anything in our reality is through our senses and what our senses, but just nerve impulses firing. Right. So like with my wife, I'll do everything from write down things that I know she likes. Right. Instead of waiting until my usual habit of, you know, waiting till Christmas Eve or the day before her birthday and then, oh, shoot, what can I get? I actually now keep a running list of when she says she likes that food or she likes that color or whatever it is, I can just jot down a note. And then when the time comes for her birthday or Christmas, I look like the most thoughtful husband in the world because I've referenced my notes. That's very smart. (laughs) Um, Right. I haven't actually become more thoughtful, but I can appear more thoughtful by relying on my notes.
1: (laughs) That's brilliant.
0: There are even things like, you know, our like our car maintenance. That's not like the creative, super advanced use case. But, you know, I have a folder on my computer with all the notes related to the car, the VIN number, the mileage, what kind of oil it needs the repairs that have happened. So when that time comes to do the car maintenance, I'm not like, oh my gosh, like what year is the car? What is the, the ID number? All these things struggling to find all this information dissipated all these different places. There's always just one place to look, which means the car maintenance is less painful and difficult, which means it happens faster, which means it happens more regularly, which means our cars are Maintain, ready to go at all times, right? Like there's a cascading effect by taking care of these little seemingly mundane details, they've kind of flowed downstream to create eventually more peace of mind, less stress, more free time, right? Like every little bit of productivity that I that I achieve means I finish work 10 minutes earlier, 20 minutes earlier, an hour earlier, and have more time to spend with my kids. That is the ultimate most meaningful impact of productivity for me.
1: I've also heard you talk about how just on the topic of productivity, beyond building a second brain, what are some ways that people can find a better way to manage and tackle their to-do lists and a long list of priorities that people are faced with during a day and think about how to do it in the most productive way?
0: Yeah. So I've noticed I've worked you know, in in the productivity field for a long time and also as a productivity coach. And I've noticed, I always try to pay attention to what are the tasks that people put on their to-do list that just, they're like zombie tasks. They just sit there, neither getting finished, like no progress being made, but nor do they get deleted and archived. They just kind of like, sit there, taking up time, taking up space. Every time you see them, you feel this pang of guilt, you know, like, oh, why? I said I wanted to get to that this week. What's wrong with me? Why can't you, you, you go down this like shame spiral? Like, gosh, I can't even. It's funny. It's usually something very simple. It's like call the doctor's office. And somehow week after week after week passes. And you're just like, what is wrong with me? I'm, I'm an adult. Why can I not do this simple thing? And honestly, there can be a few different reasons for that. But one of them is that hiding within that task is a bunch of little tasks. So often those tasks are really projects. We think, oh, it's just a simple little action. But actually, if you unpack it, you know, like something like calling the doctor's office, which happened to me recently, I had to update the insurance, find my insurance ID number, which required creating a login on the insurance website. Then I had to look up all the doctors in my area. Then I had to compare schedules with my wife to see who was going to take care of the kids. Then I had to make sure I had time. It was like a dozen different little subtasks that I had to do in order to make a doctor's appointment. And this is where notes comes in handy, right? Like, like right in that task, like underneath the task on your to-do list, you need to write those out. You need to take notes. What is the doctor's phone number? What is your insurance ID? What are the sub steps? What did you talk about in your last doctor's appointment? Like Basically, there's information that you have to have in mind in order to complete that task. And that is the very information that you want to store in your notes, not try to remember all those contextual details for each and every task on your to-do list, which is just a recipe for overwhelm and burnout.
1: I can definitely relate to what you just said. I'm sure a lot of people can. There are certain (laughs) things that you just keep moving over to next day's to-do list. And I guess just on that topic, I am wondering, are you a fan of to-do lists in general? And I guess. What is perhaps the better way to implement a to-do list?
0: Yeah, you know, I follow a methodology called uh, GTD, getting things done, which is a kind of the OG productivity philosophy from, I think it was first published 20 years ago, which is just, it's funny. It's become kind of almost common sense. Things like write everything down. Don't try to keep what are called open loops running on your head. Write everything down. Write tasks in terms of the next action instead of like step number five. What is just the very next like physical step that you'll take and things like horizons of actionability. So think about near term, medium term, long term, and focus on one horizon at a time. Really difficult to do short term and long term things at the same time. And so to just think about it in those, those buckets. I really just adopted wholesale David Allen's, you know, GTD methodology. His work deals with actionable information tasks. Mine deals with all the other kind of information, which is notes and reference. And if you think about it, those are the only two kinds of information, actionable and non-actionable. Those two categories cover all information in the universe.
1: And then I guess in terms of tackling your list of to-dos that you've written, would you say that it's wise to write them down in order of the time or the way that you want to actually implement them? So it's I know number one is the most important and then number five is the least important so that you don't end up keep pushing off, I guess, the thing that you're not looking forward to doing in a day.
0: Yeah, I think it is important. I mean, there's all these little constraints that you can create, you know, one is what you said, prioritizing. I mean, if you just start your day by often, it's as simple as resorting that list, right? Like just moving this one up a couple notches, this one down. If you start your day with a prioritized list from most to least important, you just made your day so much easier and smoother, right? Instead of every time you finish one thing, having to turn back to that list, make a decision, which is the hardest thing for humans is making decisions, trying to reevaluate this entire list. Every single moment throughout the day, you're going to have all this work to do. It's a really powerful way. Another thing is to limit the size of the list, right? Like try, often people add like 15 things on their to-do list which they know, they know in their heart that there is not a snowball's chance in hell that they're going to do all those things or even half of them. But what do we do? We know this and yet day after day, oh, this day will be different. We're like eternal optimists. No, this will be the magical day that I actually get everything done. But if you're just honest with yourself, I find for me, if I get three or four things done in a day, amidst all the meetings and other just email and other things that are kind of built into the day, that's a productive day. What if you really just forced yourself at the beginning of the day or the night before to just say, what were the three things? Or even what were the two things or the one thing? Wouldn't that be a productive day if you got your absolute most important thing done? I think a lot of times people know these things. We just we don't appreciate the importance of actually adding these constraints to our to-do list. We think they don't matter, or we think it's not worth the time to sort of plan and strategize. But all I can say is it absolutely is.
1: I agree. And I think that's something that's just really helped me during the day is writing my top. It's like a maximum five things I usually try to do because I don't write down the more normal things like meetings. So it's like, what are the five most important things I have to do every day? Then you're not overwhelmed. And then usually those are things that, yeah, are very manageable in a day. And so i found that extremely helpful for just feeling more organized during the day, and again, just productive so that you're not redoing things and you're not pushing things off. And I guess the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is lots of people reach out to you because they aren't making progress on their goals as perhaps as fast or efficiently as they want. And so what are some of the common pitfalls you see individuals make that hold them back from reaching their goals?
0: There's kind of like health. Everyone has their own situation, their own diagnosis. But gosh, I feel like the biggest, if I had to say, what is the bottleneck in most people's ability to move forward, the things that matter to them, it's really self awareness. It's really knowing themselves, which includes everything from, you know, do you know the way your mind works? Right. Like, like a a lot of experience as you move through your career and gain more experience is just knowing in what situations you thrive, in what situations you just, go down in flames, what kind of people you work well with, which ones bring the worst out of you, what kinds of tools, what kind of environments, what kind of systems, what kind of software, what kind of computer. Like, There's all these little details that maybe no single little detail of your working environment like is decisive, but together they're completely decisive. And once you know those things about yourself, if you just continuously put yourself in situations that are best for you that support the way your mind works, you're just going to be so much more successful. I think self-awareness also very much has to do with the emotional side. And to me, this this is like the black sheep or the elephant in the room of the whole productivity world is that very often when people say, I want to be more productive, or I want to learn about productivity, what they're actually seeking is emotional regulation. They're actually trying to find a way to regulate or just Sort of deal with and handle these emotions, which we all have. We all have emotions about the work we're doing, right? We have fear, we have anxiety, we have aversion, we have attraction, we have uh, desire for for certain goals and aversion to others. We have uncertainty. We have all these different emotions that just simmer underneath the surface. That we often think, "Oh, I, I just need to set those aside and just do my job." right? And yet, emotions are information. Like bringing this back to the second brain, emotions might be the most potent source of information. It's your subconscious, which if you think about it, is so much more vast than your conscious mind. It's kind of like your, your conscious mind is like a little ship in the ocean, just the very, very top level. And your subconscious is all those depths of the ocean. So let's say if you start working with a collaborator you know, at work and you feel that uneasiness, We've all felt it. The sense that, oh, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something off about this person. That source of intuition is the most potent source of wisdom for you to listen to. There is something to that for you. You may, you may still have to work with them, right? But learning to listen to these kind of subterranean feelings, it's the difference, I think, between leaders and people who are more junior in their careers. Like you think you look at these leaders or executives or founders that you, kind of emulate and you think, oh, they have this skill and that skill. Often they're just more connected to themselves emotionally. They're more in touch with their intuition. They're more in touch with their inner world, their psychology, their mind. And that's the difference between a career, between one career and and a different one. It's something that's not talked a lot about in my field, but I think is, is just crucial.
1: And I definitely think building a second brain as we talked about in the beginning can just really help you stay on track with your goals and help you meet them but I've also heard you talk about something very interesting in how what I guess holds some people back from reaching their goals and it's that they don't have a project attached to that so can you talk a little bit about that I found it very very interesting
0: Yeah I really love projects I just think projects not only are it's like They're the best unit of work for modern work. You know, it's like in the past, I don't know, in the 1950s, you could make a five-year plan. You could have these long-term goals. But it's like the world is now changing so fast. There's so much uncertainty that making long-term plans and long-term goals just doesn't make sense anymore. Have you noticed? It's like by the time I, I arrive at that far off time everything will have changed i'll probably be in a different job at a different organization i might have a completely different career right so long term planning makes less and less sense the faster the world changes at the same time you don't you don't just want to be at the level of tasks right cuz like you need to know where things are going you need to know what it's leading to what you're trying to achieve so you need something to aim at but what i like about a project is like i actually tend to advise people to make small projects that take place over like 2 to 4 weeks Two to four weeks to me is is the best kind of time horizon, right? It's long enough that you can really accomplish something meaningful. You can really do something amazing in two to four weeks. But it's not so long that you end up getting kind of bogged down in months and months of just like grinding work and lose sight of where you're going. And so, in fact, we just did this in the course that I teach. Uh, I have people make a project list. Just make a list of the concrete specific projects that you're working on right now. And for most people, when they do that, it's the first time they've ever done it. And they find it tremendously illuminating. You know, once you make a project list, you can prioritize them. Well, what is my most important project? Second most important, third most important. They can put them into groups. These are my personal projects, my work projects, my side projects. They can uh, delegate some or automate them or postpone them or redesign them. It's like you, you can really only sort of design your productive life once you have this complete inventory of everything you're working on. And to me, the best way to really document what you're working on is in terms of projects. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day And stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi, netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show.
1: And so would you say then that a project always has to be attached to an overarching goal? Or what is a project, I guess, without a goal then?
0: Yeah, I would say it needs an outcome. I like the, the term outcome because it's very kind of practical, concrete, uh, sometimes when you ask people to to write goals, they're like, "Ah, oh, my goals. Yes. You know, they're like, they, they create these kind of fanciful, imaginative, you know, build my own boat and sail the Caribbean with my family, you know, and never return home. They come up with these visions, which there is a place for that, like visioning, imagining, manifesting. That is one thing. But with a project, I just ask people, what do you want to happen? It's incredible to me how often we don't do this. Like, okay, this project that you're putting tons of time and energy into, if you could wave a magic wand and have something happen at the end, what would that be? Like, what would happen in the, in the real world? And they have to go, oh, I don't know. Often what they'll say is just the project is finished, right? But I'll say the project finishing can't be the outcome because you could finish right out by just saying, I'm done with it. Like, What does the project finishing cause to exist? What does the project finishing make real that wasn't real before? And they often really have to think about it. But once you think of that outcome, suddenly, and essentially, you know where you're headed, all these pathways to achieve it start to reveal themselves. You start to realize that I've been walking down this one path, but there's this, there's this other path and another path and another path. There's so many ways to produce any given outcome. And that's where creativity comes into play. That's where imagination comes into play. Like It takes imagination to really visualize all the different ways to achieve you know, a certain outcome.
1: I think this has just a lot of applications too for investors who are managing their own money, doing it themselves, and how they can, I guess, create a framework to make it into more manageable steps. Because I think that's a common problem among everyone where it's how do I take this thing and put it into daily manageable steps? And I think this is a great process that helps you identify what you actually want to do because every investor's goal is going to be different. So what do you want your outcome to be? And then the projects would be, how do you get there? Is that the right way to think of it?
0: Yeah. So there's a very interesting application here to investing because, you know, when I was developing this whole framework, I was in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and there's a lot of investors, you know, that you just meet. There's VCs, there's like VC associates, other investors, institutional investors. And there's something funny where it's like, if you're a project manager in a big organization, it's pretty clear what the project is. Like it's what your boss asks you to do. It's what the department said was, you know, the main priority for that quarter, whatever. But as an investor, similar to freelancers, entrepreneurs, independent contractors, anyone whose work is not given to them by someone else, you kind of have to make up your own projects, right? No one gives them to you. You have to just decide like, what am I going to learn? What am I going to build? What am I going to create? What am I going to write? And that is so true of investing. Like you could just kind of want, like, it's funny, there's a trend now of like uh, on TikTok of like a day in the life of a VC. I don't know if you've seen this, but a lot of VCs are going like, oh, this is my daily routine. And then they show like hour by hour what they do throughout the day. And I think one reason people are interested in that is like a lot of people wonder, what do investors do all day? Like they just count their money. They just like research stuff on the internet. Like it's very unclear, but I think investors very much do have projects. There's things they're trying to learn, skills they're trying to develop, industries they're trying to research, companies they're trying to do due diligence on. There's reports they're writing, presentations they're making, I don't know, uh, partners they're recruiting. Each of those things that I just named, like eight of them are projects. There's a start date, there's an end date, and there's a certain outcome that you're trying to achieve.
1: And I guess just on that point, so when someone has a ton of different tasks to do during the day, and they perhaps require different an analytical versus a creative aspect How do you approach tackling these tasks that require different parts of our brain? Because I find personally, it's very hard to switch from doing a creative task like editing a video, a podcast episode to then going and researching uh, what to talk about with a guest or researching investments and stuff.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. I think I think this is another one of the big kind of things about the modern condition is we have so many hats we wear. So many hats we wear, we are, you know, we're a spouse or a parent or like even in our jobs, like just strictly work, you have someone you report to, you might have people that report to you, you're all like, depending on the meeting, you might be an advisor and just providing your input. You might be the decision maker, you might be the person doing the research and presenting it. You might just be the person taking notes on this. Like in every single meeting, we, we play a slightly different role. So I think one of the, the things that we have to get good at is compartmentalization. You have to know how to. It's almost like acting. Like in this meeting or this with this client or in this uh, project or this situation, I'm going to play this role. To take notes from that point of view, from that lens, take in all this information, save it in your notes. But then the minute that meeting is done... Just get those notes and all those documents and files and just set them aside. Because in the very next meeting, you might have a completely different role to play. Or in the next conversation or with the next project. That is really hard to do with your first brain, right? Like, have you ever, you know, like walked away from a conversation? It's like, you're still processing everything that went on is just swirling around your head. And then you have to pivot into a completely different state of mind. You're like, whoa, you have like mental whiplash. One of the few ways that I found to do that more easily is by taking notes because I can just get those notes and literally save them, put them to the side on my computer and turn to the next thing. Yeah, a second brain is a is a way to almost like save your place in a video game, set aside that progress, turn to something else and be able to come back and sort of like boot up that state of mind once again and continue right where you left off.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. One thing that I've been thinking about doing after I've been writing my own notes after say a podcast episode I listen to, I'll keep going back to that, where I write down, say it's an investment that I'm interested in or something they said, it made me want to look into that further. And I was thinking about for the episodes I produce Is there any merit, do you think, to sharing my key takeaways with listeners? Because often if we have an episode, some of them can be, I guess, very dense with information and you might leave it being like, that was a great episode, but then you kind of forget maybe the takeaways. And so what I've been doing now since reading your book is almost saying... Not only the things that I like, but what, am I, what are the actionable takeaways from each episode? And I was wondering then, have you ever used the second brain notes as something that you share with others?
0: Oh, yeah, that's, that's one of the main use cases okay. is, yeah, it's like every time you, you, know, you watch a slide presentation... If you just write down three bullet points, those three bullet points, I call this distillation. They're like the distilled essence of that slide presentation. Often people, like I'm sure you see this every day, people will say they'll recommend content to you. Oh, watch this slide presentation or read this book or watch this documentary, right? I can just tell you from long experience that is not effective. No one is going to spend 10 hours reading a book or very few people will spend 10 hours reading a book just because you casually mentioned it, right? But... If you send them a little one page or just not even a one page, just like a paragraph with some bullet points of a summary, they are infinitely more likely to sort of glance over those, those key points that you've sent them. And then they can decide, maybe they'll decide this has no relevance to my current interests. I'm not going to read it, but there's a much higher chance that if they're, they are relevant, they will then read that thing, right? This is so effective that I've essentially stopped recommending content. I've only, I only share summaries. All I'm trying to do is help that person decide if this piece of content, this, this work, whatever it is, is worth the investment of their time to really consume or not. And whether, like, whichever one they choose, it's valuable to them, right? Like them deciding, no, this is not relevant is in a way just as valuable because now they've not spent all those hours consuming something that is not relevant. And why does that matter is, you know, If you become that person that people expect, Oh, Rebecca, you know, she always is just very succinct to the point and respects my time and attention to give me a recommendation with a summary that I can actually act on. Your reputation gets better. They value their relationship more. They're more likely to send interesting things to you. They're more likely to read other kinds of messages, you know, like investment pitches or whatever it is that you send. It's like, if you become this kind of hub of knowledge in in succinct distilled form, you're going to start to create value in your network like you just wouldn't believe.
1: I totally agree. Okay. I'm glad that that is something that you do too, because I do get messages from listeners saying, how are you applying this? Or what do you think of this investment? And so I think it would be cool to have that sharing note platform. And so I guess I'm wondering, do you have any that you recommend? I know that you have some in your book, but even for the purposes of sharing, is there maybe a better one?
0: Yeah. um, I have a YouTube video. It's, I think, the most popular YouTube video we've ever done with four note taking archetypes. So, I basically explain in the video how you are an architect note taker, a librarian note taker, a gardener note taker, or a student note taker. And then, depending on which archetype you are, I then recommend specific products to you. But some of the most common, just generally from that framework, are like Notion, uh, Evernote, Obsidian, and Apple Notes. Those are probably the, the four most common, uh, and those correspond to each of the four archetypes.
1: And I guess just for our listeners, what would you say is a great first step that they can take that's something actionable they can do after listening to this episode today?
0: Yeah, here's what I would recommend they do. Don't even download a new app, right? Like you don't know if this is for you. You don't know if this is something you're going to be committed to. So just do a test drive. Open up whatever is the pre-installed default app on your phone. If you're on iOS, it's probably Apple Notes. If you're on Android, it might be Google Keep. Or depending on which version of Android, you'll have something else. But I guarantee you there is some basic note taking app and just take one note a day for 30 days. Personally, you know, my long term average I found is two notes a day. That's it. And a note is not this big document. It's like one quote, one image, one idea, one theory, right? It's like, can be one sentence. Take one note a day for 30 days. Take It'll take a minute a day, right? Save them in the note-taking app. That's the important part. At the end of 30 days, just open up that app, look through these at least 30 notes, and think about how you might leverage those notes to become more productive, more effective, and more creative. Right? just I won't even suggest how that might be, but just ask yourself, if you don't look inside that application and find ways that you can use 30 notes that you've taken one note a day, nothing else that I say will convince you. You really have to convince yourself. But the best way to do that is to just try it as a habit for 30 days. You can put it on your calendar, set a reminder on your phone. I think the, the big barrier that people have to overcome is they, they actually, in their heart of hearts, don't believe that they have access to good enough ideas whether their own or ones in, in the outer world that they encounter, to be worth this effort, to be worth taking notes on. So the first thing you have to do is prove to yourself through this little 30-day experiment that you do. Because what happens for most people is they look at these 30 notes and they realize, oh my gosh, I have access to so much knowledge, so much wisdom. I'm intaking every day so many insights from podcasts and YouTube videos and articles and books and, and you know shows like this one. Once that light bulb turns on and you really start believing in the power of the ideas that you have access to, everything else is going to come naturally. At that point, go to my YouTube channel, go to my blog, read my book, follow other creators and, you know, content creators who write on this stuff. Like there's so much out there, but the initial spark of wanting to do this and believing in it is the thing that you have to do
1: first. Yeah, I think that was such a great tip for everyone to start with if they don't already take notes. And I guess just for someone who is completely new to note taking and they're not even really sure what they should be taking notes on, should I guess the criteria be it's something they want to, they find interesting, something they want to learn more about, maybe it's related. It doesn't have to be related to their job. It could just be interest. What's a framework or criteria you kind of use?
0: Yeah, you know. Often people, they really take notes through the lens of should, right? I think it's because that's what we were taught in school, right? What would the teacher say? You should take notes on this because it will be on the test. You should take notes on this because you'll need it to complete your homework, you know, or to get a good grade or to graduate. Like there was always this, you know, this carrot that we were going after and we didn't actually want to take notes. We just had to in order to get to that thing. But once you leave school... It's very different. You know, no one is telling you to take notes or telling you what to take notes on. No one is grading you or giving you any kind of evaluate, like really in your professional life, no one cares if you take notes. They only care if you produce results. Right. So you have to be very, this is where the self-awareness comes in. Really ask yourself. You know, if you take notes through the lens of should, the stuff you keep is gonna be stuff that seems like it would be useful, but it's not. Cause there's no gravitational pull. It's like an obligation, it's a burden, right? You really have to take your personal notes based on on passion. What interests you, I often say what resonates with you. You know, when you're reading a book or an article or listening to a podcast and something you hear or read something that just you just have that feeling, I have to hold on to this. This somehow matters to me. It's important that my future self remember this. It's, it's, it's really a feeling. Like the hair will stand up on, the, on your arm or the back of your neck. You'll get goosebumps. Your heart will beat a little faster. Your pupils will widen. Like your, your subconscious mind, your body will actually have a reaction to information. That is the perfect indicator that that is something you should write down in your notes.
1: And just tying it back to investing, because this is one thing that I've started doing is for each, say, stock, every company that I'm interested in, I have a little note that I write things on, whether it's important things from the earnings call or that I've listened to someone say, I'll write down a little tidbit. And then it's kind of interesting because I found I can create connections or I'm like, these two people are saying opposite things. So then it's something that I go explore further. And so it just goes back to it's something so simple, but it helps you create connections between things that you might not have otherwise because it was just in your memory, but in your, when it's just in your mind, you're not really connecting all those dots together, whereas I could see them on my note.
0: Exactly. Once you can really only, like you said, notice patterns, make connections, edit things, annotate them when they're outside your head right like how could you do any of those things in the vague kind of the vagueness of your own mind it's just impossible you can have ideas they can arise but if you don't externalize them and document them they're basically like a vapor like one minute they're here and then you turn to something else and it's gone to really work with ideas to manipulate them as if they're like ingredients that you're cooking with all of that can only happen if they if they exist in some form outside of your head
1: Well, that was super helpful. You gave us lots to implement after this. I know that I'm going to keep doing it and hopefully I'll get some shared notes going soon for our community here. But before I let you go today, where can the audience go to learn more about everything that you do and everything that you put out?
0: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. You can go to buildingasecondbrain.com, which has all the information. My book is there, my course is there, my podcast, my YouTube channel. We produce a lot of Second Brain related, you know, instructional how to content. And it can all be found at buildingasecondbrain.com.
1: Thank you again so much for coming on today, Diego.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP.